You are watching Brand Talk, another way to talk. Uh, there's no yelling, there's no screaming, there's just good old conversation. And today we, is going to be no exception. I have one of my favorite personalities uh, here. Uh, visiting with us today to talk about his brand. And um, uh, he says, do I have a brand? And I said, boy, do you have a brand? And his name is uh, Charles Bush. And um, I, uh, before I bring him on in, uh, what I like to do is uh, read his bio and uh, I am just so excited to uh, have him here with us today, uh, because I always learn something from Charles Bush uh, every time I talk with him. And if you don't know who Charles Bush is, he is an actor, playwright, cabaret entertainer, and drag pioneer. I don't know whether or not he was Davy Crockett or not, but anyway, he's a drag pioneer. He is the author and star of such plays as The Divine Sister, The Lady in Question, Red Scare on Sunset, The Confessions of Lily Dare, and Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, one of the longest-running plays in the history of Off-Broadway. Um, his play, The Tale of the Allergist's wife received a Tony nomination for best play and is the longest running Broadway comedy of the past 25 years. He wrote and starred in the film versions of my favorite movie, uh, Psycho Beach Party, which he's going to have to talk about whether or not he likes it or not. I should say that to a guest, but I, I really, I, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, and Die, Mommy, Die, the latter of which won him the best performance award for the Sunset Film Festival. For two seasons, he appeared as Nat Ginsburg on the HBO series Oz and is the author of the autobiographical novel Whores of Lost Atlantis. Mr. Bush was honored with a special Drama Desk Award for career achievement as both a performer and playwright. He is the subject of a documentary film. The lady in question is Charles Bush. And without any further ado, it is my pleasure and honor to welcome the ever fabulous Charles Bush. Charles, welcome to Brand Talk. Hey there, John. Lovely to see you. Oh, just wonderful. We did this uh, on my radio show about five years, and you were performing at the cabaret convention. What was I? Uh, do you still do that? No, I think I was never asked back. <laughs> They're tough over there. No, no. No, well, I got some juice over there. Uh, not only do I know our, our mutual skin a friend, uh, Scott Durkin, but uh, I I have some juice over there so that if we'll, no, we'll right. because you were loved. No, don't, 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 wait. Wonderful job. don't wait. 
Don't waste your juice, Eddie. Don't waste it. Uh, no, actually, I, I don't even know. Honestly, you know, I, I have different chapters in my life, and I, uh, for about eight years, I really was throwing myself into this uh, new chapter as as a cabaret performer. But I've kind of I wanted and achieved what I what I wanted. Now I'm next. Move on to the next one. I got it. I got it. You know, this is a a brand talk and uh, we talk about brands and and you're listed here as an actor, playwright, cabaret entertainer. And my question to you is, what is your brand right now? today how would if somebody were to meet you i'm Charles, and they didn't know you i don't know how that could be but if they didn't know you my name is charles bush and i am blank wow that's tough and i need help john i ought to, I ought to hire you to help me figure my figure out my anytime I, 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 hmm, I do, I do uh, lots of things you know, but and yet yeah. they all kind of come from the same source of story. I would say um, it sounds a little a might pretentious, but I'm Charles Bush and I'm a storyteller. No, no I, I think I do is about narrative. I'm addicted to narrative. Well, you do it so well. I got to tell you and I and, you know, when I, I, I do share my thoughts about you and your stories of Aunt Lil. I mean, I almost cry. I mean, they are, you just write so beautifully, you know, and I've, I've come to this writing. I'm a blue collar guy. Uh, and uh, you and I uh, share uh, similar uh, things. I was a shy kid because I was overweight yeah. and I was always made fun of. Yeah. And um, I, I, of course, I didn't have uh, uh, some of the uh, hardships that you had. But one of the beautiful things is Aunt Lil. And maybe you can talk a little bit about this wonderful woman that may, gives me goosebumps uh-huh. when I when I read your stories about Aunt Lil. Oh, well, thank you, John. I, I really, seriously. Um, um, Kind of moves me when you say that. I, you know, I was very fortunate in the, that my mother had an older sister, my aunt Lillian, who was a widowed very early in my childhood and had no kids of her own. And she, uh, I was really part of. She kind of raised me really my whole life, even even when my mother was alive. But my mother died when I was seven, and Aunt Lil really stepped in. And and my father was a lot of fun, but not really a, a responsible parent, you know, and. Uh, so he really was more kind of a special guest star in my life, but uh, <laughs> and I and, and enjoyed him, his company, and I mean, he was fun and and uh, affectionate. But just you could not depend on him; you were wise not to. But Aunt Lillian, you could depend on, and she just devoted herself to me. And uh, and I I really and in some ways it's funny people think that she's kind of my auntie Mame, and yes, in a sense, in that. She's it was this Manhattan lady who adopted me and and had me move in move with her into New York City, but she she wasn't that kind of you know darling sort of you know flamboyant person and and she could actually in some ways was very shy and so it, it what I what I love is is sharing her with you know the the, the world <laughs> via Facebook um, I 
I kind of like making her a star, you know, and I have, I uh, bought a, a bench, put a plaque on this bench in my neighborhood in beautiful Abington Square Park with her name on it. And, and, and I, I get such a kick when people on Facebook say, who I, you know, I don't really know, but just say, oh, I, I, was, I went to Abington Square Park and, and sat on Anne Boleyn's bench. And I, and I just think that's so sweet that I don't know what the hell she would have thought because she died in 99, way you know, before Facebook and all this. And uh, I just can't imagine what she would think that strangers sort of feel affection for her. So I, I've, um, I've written a, a memoir uh, that I find, finally finished after a number of years, and uh, it's sort of out there now to be sold. So let's hope that, that I find a publisher. These are strange days that we're in. But then I, I, ho- I hope that I can really just share her with people. I, I, I'd like to, I, I think that there's something that, a lot of people can either identify with because many people had a kind of surrogate parent. Uh, and I think there's something we can all maybe learn about um, just taking someone on and, and being a little bit selfless and uh, yeah. being, seeing the magic in someone else and, and trying to help them uh, focus it. Yeah. The story that really moved me and to uh, I hope I don't break up here uh, was uh, the ring uh, that you uh, that you uh, misplaced and how much it meant to her. And she was such a lady on how. She handled it. Maybe you do you mind? Uh, I'm very, very moved that you remember that. I, I oh no, I, 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 I don't. I am. There's one thing about me <laughs> I'm sincere, and when I say Aunt Lil moved me, that I mean, I'm, I'm still getting the goosebumps. I'm sorry for cutting you off, but go ahead. And I, and I, I cut that story out of my book too. I should put it back in. Um, no, uh, just my, uh, I was named after uh, my mother's and Aunt Lillian's um, older brother, Charlie, who uh, was killed uh, the first casualty from uh, World War II from Cincinnati, where, where they were from. And um, she just loved her brother, just worshiped her, her brother, Charlie. I, and she used to, um, say to me when I was growing up, oh, you're so much like Charlie. I, I feel like you're, sometimes I just feel like you're Charlie reincarnated. You're so much alike. Uh, so the, in her jewelry box, which I used to kind of like to seeing all the, she's a very stylish Park Avenue lady. And uh, anyway, she had a ring that was Char- Charlie's, I guess, college ring that, that he wore that was on his finger and survived the plane crash. And it was slightly bent. And I, I just was fascinated by this ring that belonged to my namesake. You know, it's something physically tangible that made him seem so real to me. Uh, and uh, and she, I guess I was 14. And she gave it, decided to give it to me. Uh, on my 14th birthday, she, she felt that I should have that. And I was so moved because I knew what, what he meant to her and the, the one surviving relic, you know, of his. And so I, I just, and it was too big for me. And she had it, you know, she kind of put tape on it to try to make it fit my 14 year old skinny finger. 
And I, I loved it. I was so, I just couldn't believe that she trusted me. Within 24 hours, I lost it. It just slipped. It just slipped. It was too, it was too big for me in every way. You know, and I, I was devastated somehow in school. I don't know. It fell off my finger. I didn't realize it. And I, I was so horrified. And I, you know, I was afraid to come home. I didn't, you know, I, I just was hyster- hysterical. And, and I know, and I could never lie to her. She was so smart. You know, she, she could pick up anything. And her insight was so acute. And um, so I just had to come clean and told her and, and she could she could see that I, I really was shaken up. I wasn't cavalier. Lost it, and uh, I, she did not uh, uh, scold me or, or or get angry or anything. She what said. A- she said. Um, she, we sh- uh, and I'm not, got me choked up. She said, um, "Never shed tears over um, an inanimate object. Never oh. shed tears over something that can't love you back." Wow. You know, uh, I just thought, wow. You know, at 14, I, I thought this is extraordinary to have that kind of um, grace to just, you know, she, wow. and she, she could sense, you know, I, I, it was, I was very upset about it, I, you know, that I somehow almost betrayed her trust in me at, at 14. You know, I, I think she even made it kind of, you know, we're, you know, we're Jewish, but I, I, she was kind of a sort of scientific atheist in a way, I guess. And, um, mm-hmm. I was raised with no religion, mm-hmm. no religious background, and so I didn't have any kind of bar mitzvah that you know traditionally says that you know thirteen man. Mm-hmm. So in a certain sense, her giving me that ring was like my you know bar mitzvah, you know, and then I blew it. But she, I, I, I think I maybe I learned more from her reaction than uh, any kind of um, spiritual schooling. That is such a beautiful story, and it has the same effect uh, on me as a, as when I read it. You are your brand is a storyteller. You yeah. really are a great storyteller. I'm I'm for a storyteller. I'm interrupting you. I'm a terrible conversationalist. I keep interrupting you. Um, but uh, it's, it's your show. It's your, it's, it's your, I, what I want you to do is I want you to, I, I, I to shine. So right. you go and you do, that's why I didn't interrupt you. Okay, and I'm well, not going to, it's a different way of talking. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say was just that, that yes, I would say my brand is storytelling. For instance, when, uh, about eight years ago, I kind of, I dabbled in cabaret at different points of my career, but I never really focused on it like I have the past eight years. And I came out of just a, basically a, a, a promoter calling me and out of the blue and saying that, that they could book me on a gay cruise line to do a, a cabaret act. Uh, for quite a good sum of money and i had had not had an act and it had done hadn't done any cabaret work in over 20 years had no musical director anything uh but i thought why why not try it and, and the pay was was good but i i what i did approach it as the way i kind of approach everything is is from a, i try to approach it for things new things from a positive point of view as opposed to oh i can't i can't do that for various reasons 
I, I try to play a little bit of a game with myself on what what do I have to offer? You know, maybe it'll turn out that I have nothing to offer this, this situation. But, you know, if I'm going to do this, what have I to offer? And I thought with Cabaret, I'm not the world's greatest singer. You know, if you want really big, rangy notes, there are plenty of fellows out there who will give that to you better than I. Uh, I thought, but I am a storyteller. And I can, I think I can take a song and try to turn it into a, a bit of a three act play and, and really act it in where maybe the uh, tone may not be perfect, but hopefully if I am honest and, and, and really play each moment of the song that, that that could be an interesting experience for the listener. And, and then I thought, well, I have also a lot of literal stories to tell you know, so, uh, between songs and and I used the cabaret medium that that way, and so often really my my shows cabaret shows are oh well they've it's changed a bit because I've I've learned so much about singing as I've done it for these past years, but it's maybe sixty five percent singing thirty five percent talk, and so I it, it they're it's very important and I, and I did love the directness of the communication as opposed to being a play where I, you know, I'm, I, I am playing a character, but this mm-hmm. is literally, I'm speaking to you and you're all as if you're in my living room and sharing these songs that are, you know, very beautiful songs from the American songbook, but trying to give them a, a an individual life through my interpretation and, and my, my uh, being in touch with my, the, my own sense of drama so yeah, yeah. So, so it does go back to storytelling and you know I, I i do visual art as well but even there that when i do a, a portrait it's it's there's a certain storytelling element to the, that but i i love i love narrative i uh my plays are are strongly um linear i i sometimes wish that i had the gift of um a more abstract feeling because mm-hmm. uh, I, I admire uh, writing that's not so strictly, you know, from point right. to point, but it's, I, it eludes me. I can't really do that. Same as in, in painting, I, my attempts at, at abstract art just look like wallpaper. Now I, yeah. I, I have, and, and everybody, and it's funny, it carries into my relationships as well. It's the idea of storytelling. Everybody I I meet, in a certain sense, has a well. Everybody does have a story. Everybody has, everybody has a story worth telling. You Absolutely, just, a lot of people just don't know, don't recognize their own narrative. Yes, a shy, shy person or or a person who doesn't like themselves that much or, right. or whatever. Right. You know, but you, everyone has a story worth telling. Yeah. And then I find my friends that, you know, I, I, and I, but I tend to tidy it up like Tom Judson, who's my dear friend, who's been my musical director and arranger and cabaret partner for the past decade, uh, is the most fascinating person. And, and I, and he knows it because I mean, it's really a fascinating life. But I told him one time in the car, I said, you know, I have a, a, a version of your life that I tell people 
that I've kind of tidied up, tidied up, and you might I'm, you might want to take it and, and, and use it. He said, "What is that?" So I told Tom the story of his life. He said, "That's not at all what happened." He said, "There, you've compressed years." Together, I said, "Yeah, but it's, it, my way is better." You know, that <laughs> the way you you made your choice because of this, because but that's not true. I made that choice because of this, 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 and this, and this. I said, "Yeah, but this and this works better." <laughs> I love it. You're listening to Charles Bush, storyteller, and this is Brand Talk, another way to talk. Every Thursday around three o'clock, we get together with the greatest brands that have to speak about them, the brands. And today we're talking to uh, uh, Charles Bush. And one of the things that um, uh, and, and I, I brought this up the last time, but I'm going to bring it up again because it it really, I think, can help the youngins in the group. And that is, um, uh, first of all, I always gush over the fact that you went to Northwestern and right. that was the school I wanted to go to graduate school, uh, to, and I, I didn't g- get there, but I have such a love of, of, of Northwestern. I wanted to be in the psychology program. It didn't happen. And, uh, you went there and you studied, it was a drama. Was it dramatic arts? And what you found is that you weren't getting roles. (laughs) You weren't getting you weren't getting parts. And what you decided to do is write your own parts. And I'd like you to talk a little bit because that is really what young people, when you're first starting out, you don't have somebody to give that kind of advice to you. But so I like you to talk a little bit about that. I guess, I, I mean, I suppose that's kind of my, <laughs> my main achievement, I guess, was just that um, I, I wanted to be on stage since I can remember that. But, but, and for a long time, early on, my, as a child, adolescent, adolescent, my desire to be on stage was greater than my ability. Uh, you know, I had, it, it was difficult it was difficult basically being a, a gay child and being a, a somewhat effeminate gay child to uh, to be on stage. There was a certain sense when I would try to be in a play or even take an acting class as a kid that I had to somehow try to imitate like a normal child uh-huh. that I didn't really even understand. Right. So it was almost like I was like an alien, space alien trying to imitate how humans act you know and so it was never going to be i was never going to be as good as some kid who just feels free to just exist be themselves you know there's always it's very it's a very challenging thing for the for the gay kid uh so uh, and then i but i got into northwestern because i did not have to audition i my first choices were um nyu uh boston university um the uh, state school purchase, but you had audition and I didn't get in. But Northwestern, I don't know how I got in because my grades weren't very good either. I, I, only, I only think Ambeline and I used to ponder how the hell they let me in to Northwestern. And, and it might have been 
that maybe they were impressed that I did so many things that I was interested not only in acting, but, but writing right. and, and visual art. Uh, but anyway, I got to Northwestern and, and I was never ever cast in a university play. And, and I, but I, I would say, um, Bravo to me in a way is that, that I, I was raised and I, and I, I do have to credit Aunt Lillian with, with, again, with this, this very pragmatic view. And she was always, um, this is going to turn into the Ambulian hour, I guess, but it's okay. It's just, That's okay. Uh, it's just that she raised me with a rather tough um, point of view of, of being rather brutally honest with yourself. And she would say, I, you, she would say, you, you, I don't, you don't want to be Blanche Dubois. I you know, <laughs> 10 years old, I wasn't sure who Blanche Dubois was, but I got the gist, you know, and she never really, you know, she never really explained things. It wasn't like an Auntie Mame where Auntie Mame gives the, the young nephew the pad of paper and anything you don't know, you write down, you know, she never, she just assumed that I knew whatever reference she made. And, but, you know, but a kid, you, you pick up the gist. So, you know, whoever, Blanche Dubois, that must mean, you know, you don't want to live in fantasy and, so, uh, so, so it was always this kind of um, analyze your motives, analyze the situation, uh, and and so I saw, you know, even at, at 19, 18, 19, that uh, okay, I'm not getting these parts that I'm auditioning for. You know, the, this sort of young juvenile young guy that that even though I think I did a good audition, but there's a quality in me that's just not right for this part. And, and uh, there was no, in 1972, 1973, there weren't, there was no Torch Song Trilogy, Angels in America, Buyer and Seller, all these roles that an androgynous young man could play, or, or uh, Terrence McNally's later plays, Love, Valor, Compassion. There was nothing to hope for. No, there was nothing there. And I, I, all I wanted was to be on stage. So I, I had to uh, rethink uh, how is this going to be uh, um, because I I, knew, I sensed that the uh, a university theater department is basically a microcosm of of show business and mm -hmm. it's not working here it's not going to work in the in the big yeah. wide world. Fortunately, uh, uh, since I was was from New York City. When I would come home for vacations, I started seeing the work of, of um, uh, downtown, I don't know what you want to call it, avant-garde uh, uh, theater artists, like particularly Charles Ludlam, who had his own company and, and was an actor playwright and, and uh, used drag uh, actors and drag just because they played the roles well, these you know, men and mm -hmm. So yeah. the things that I were would seem to be a liability. My androgyny was not a liability, but an asset. With love. right, uh, but and, I, never, I never wanted to be a part of this company. I wanted to, but he inspired me. I love it to create roles for myself. Yeah, and what I was impressed, I as I was uh, reading over the, your Wikipedia entry, uh, the um, uh, women that you portray are basically, um, and uh, forgive me, I'm being the, the psychologist. I'm wearing my psychologist hat. Was um, uh, you could be, you could be uh, the strong personality that you really weren't. In real life, can I be that bold? No, 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 
Go ahead. No, that. no because the thing is, it's funny. Uh, sometimes people write when I've done interviews with me, even recently, and and they say, oh, it's, I think it's a little facile, actually. I just people say, oh, because I play such theatrical ladies that the, it would be, oh, that in real life he's, you know, there's a soft, little, gentle, quiet person, which I'm not. I, I, I can be. I mean, I, I'm, I am, right. certain, but I think. I think most people are, we're all many things in different situations with sure. the way we are with this group of people in our life can be very different from the way we are with this kind of person. And, and, and yes, I, there, there are times when I am rather recessive and, and kind of closed off. And, uh, uh, I can't, I, and I can be, and I can be shy. I, I'm not great at a party to just go up to people and, you know, hi, I'm Charles Bush. How are you? You know, I, right. but if I mentioned, if you introduce me at a party to some people who are, you know, I have something in common with, I can actually be the life of the party and I can be too much too. I could sometimes decide I have, I have a story, I have a personal story to suit every occasion. And there are times I'm at you know, dinner with somebody, I have to think to myself, just, you know, maybe, okay, you don't have to tell every fucking story about you and Joan Rivers or you and the time you met Paul McCartney. You know, just, you don't have to tell it all. Just sit back and listen and it's, let somebody else have a turn. So, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm the life of the party and I'm a, a, a contented recluse. But I'm, I'm, I'm really a, a dichotomy of everything. I mean, I, again, I do think that it's true for most people, but I, I think with me, it might be more dramatic that I'm, uh, I'm the life of the party. I'm, I'm, I'm quiet, shy. I'm male. I'm female. I'm young. I'm old. I'm, uh, all these different things. And, you know, it's, um, I'm oblivious. I'm generous. I'm all, all those things. Yeah. I'm selfish. I'm, I'm selfish. I can be very, very giving. Yeah. yeah I'm the mood. <laughs> yeah. And we're listening here to Charles Bush, um, storyteller here on Brand Talk. And uh, we ju we're just about getting started now. And what I uh, like to uh, ask is, um, uh, but before I ask the question, I'm going to uh, give you my take. Uh, okay. What do you prefer? Do you prefer movies or do you prefer the stage? And I always said that the stage is more real to the actor and the movies are more real to the viewer or to the audience in the sense that uh, it, it, with movies, you, you, um, you take uh out of sequence, the scenes, uh, while on on stage, what you're doing is it it, it follows a certain pattern mm. and uh, series of events. And uh, most, I think, most actors, in fact, prefer the stage. But uh, I I ask you, what do you uh, prefer? Uh, I would agree with them if you're the actor for hire. I can totally see that it would be true. Now, for me, it's been different. I've only made a few movies. Now, the first few things I did on film were, you know, I had small parts in, in big commercial movies. And yeah. then I had a, you know, 
I had a recurring role in this HBO series Oz, but you know, I had a couple good episodes. Most of the time, I was kind of in the background of other people's scenes, and I and I didn't really get it. To be honest with you, I didn't. I it just I was just always very nervous that I didn't want to waste people's time because I had such a small part that you just don't want to cause trouble. So you just try to be right. as you try to be efficient, but there's not much right. Me much more than that. Uh, however, when I fi- when I had chances finally to to appear in in my own screen adaptations of my own plays, uh, Psycho Beach Party, but particularly um, Die Mommy Die, which was really my movie. The Psycho Beach Party was more ensemble piece, but right. I love it so much, and I, and and I, I don't think. And then I, I I did another movie which is very. Nobody saw, but a movie that I directed and wrote and and starred in called A Very Serious Person. But uh, those two experiences, Die, Mommy, Die, and A Very Serious Person, I would say were the greatest experiences of my creative life. I don't think I've ever felt as um, totally engaged physically, emotionally, creatively in every way. So I, so, and, and, and even the piecemeal. Uh, filming is different because I was a director or, or in Die, Mommy, Die, I wasn't the director, but I, I worked so closely with the director and, and it came out of my own mind. It was, you know, I was the writer and I was treated with such respect by Mark Rucker, the director, that we were just so in sync that I, uh, in a certain sense, might as well have been the director just because we were, I was so in sync with him and loved every choice that he made. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that, that was just marvelous, and I and it's addictive, and I've wanted desperately to make a movie ever since. Um, very serious person, and that was in two thousand. When, when did we make that movie? About two thousand six. So it's been a long time, and I and I and I was very spoiled with those movies because they were basically handed to me. Just. Mm-hmm. People wanted to make the producers wanted to make these movies, and they hired me, and we did it, and all a marvelous time. But uh, that was rather rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, my world of indie filmmaking that I that I'm part of. Right, I've tried very much, but finally, after all these years, I, I was almost going to give up and thinking that dream was kaput. But um, I found some wonderful uh, producers who are who are going to make a, a movie that I, I've written uh, with my friend Carl Andrus and uh, we're going to direct it together and I, I star in it and uh, we're supposed to start shooting October 5th. I just hope, you know, I'm praying that, uh, you know, the, the various health guidelines will be in place. They seem to be already for October. Mm-hmm. Hope, hope things stay, you know, it just only get better. I, but whatever, I'm, I'm ready to go. And well, so may I ask what it's going to be about, or we can't yeah, yeah. Uh, discuss it? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, well, it's going to star um, uh, my longtime muse, Julie Halston, and I. And she's a funny, funny lady. And we, it's a contemporary kind of caper comedy. Uh, I love it. And it's uh, set in the, the strange world of old movie collectors and film dealers. And I, I play this rather disreputable fellow who's uh, got a terrible reputation for basically being kind of a scam artist of selling people what are supposed to be, you know, 
old film reels that turned out to, not to be and you know, all this. And um, I, in the, the setup is that I, I look in on a very elderly old friend of mine to help him occasionally. And he's kind of a hoarder and uh, he, I find he's died in his sleep and uh, his uh, niece is uh, Julie who's a widow is in Boca Raton in Florida. And she has to come to New York to sort of disp- dispose of his, her uncle's hoarding collection. And I'm there to help her, but I kind of want, you know, sort of trying to ex- want to exploit the situation. And we find in his, uh, the horrible apartment, this r- rare, si- law, supposedly lost Lon Chaney silent film that's so so coveted by people in that field. And what do we do with this movie? You know, the, on, on one hand, the the moral thing would be to take this movie and and give it to the Museum of Modern Art or or Turner Classic Movies and sh- share it with the world. Or do we sell it for millions of dollars to a private collector? You know, <laughs> again by anyone. So yeah, so so it becomes a kind of a thing, and then somebody steals a movie from us, and we've got to get the movie back, and, and it's it's very zany. And uh, but with a, a, a interesting um, point of view about um, lost uh, lost film. So that's yeah. the, that's the thing. Yeah, I can't wait. I was, and it's so exciting. It's so marvelous, particularly at my age to. Uh, to be excited and to just be excited about something and just that we're going to make this movie and, and, and yeah, I'm thrilled about it. Can't wait. Well, uh, you're going to have to come back and promote the heck out of it because, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, uh, I, I got this man crush on you. Well, you know, I just um, think you're wonderful. And, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't easy becoming your Facebook friend. I had to, I had to push, uh, uh, Scott Durkin on it. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm not trying to embarrass you by the way. I'm just, I, I mean, you, you must've, you get a lot of requests and uh, I was just delighted and we consummated the relationship at the cabaret convention where we went on, we had that a delicious party we both were at yeah, uh, yeah. overlooking Manhattan. Uh, uh-huh. Oh my God. That was, I had died and gone to heaven. Not only was the music great, uh, not only was the, um, the, uh, Decor, great the scenery, but I was with Charles Bush. I mean, you couldn't be, you couldn't be, it couldn't be any better. Well, thank you. So, kind of you. Yeah, I was going to say something. I kind of lost my track about about the branding, and yeah, well, you know, social media. It, it's been interesting. You know, I, I certain ones elements work for me, and others don't. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Twitter. Twitter doesn't work for me. Uh, I, I have a Twitter account, but I've never, I've really, I think I've posted three times once. It's just that, that kind of the short uh, written. Yes. Characters. It, no it, more than 240 it's characters. For, I think it's very good for if you're, if you want to engage in particularly um, political discussion. I, I, yes. not, I don't think that's not your brand. I no, would, you know, I think you're costing. Instagram yeah. is I do a little better on Instagram, but even there, I you know I need I need the, the storytelling and yes, and I've used Facebook for all of its sinister connotations. It's been very helpful to me um, in mm-hmm. 
many ways. It's certainly helpful, literally uh, promoting cabaret appearance around the country. Uh, sure. I know what I sure at it. It really worked. But yeah. then, but then uh, as and I and I when I first started on it in '97, um, I was writing just you know I didn't really know how quite how it worked. So it, they were mostly just short little things about how I'm going to be appearing here and you know. But then I then I gradually thought, gee, I'd like to uh, you know put a little sugar with the medicine and instead of just you know please come see me at the Raz Room and you know in New Hope. Uh, I would then tell a little story about uh, putting the show together or, or something. And then I so enjoyed just sharing those anecdotes and I got a million of them. So, uh, so it became, then sometimes I just started writing the anecdote in itself. And I, and I don't, I, I, I don't really need um, uh, Facebook as a, um, a daily confessional or um, right. Or as I mean, a lot of people, and and that sounded kind of that sounded rather bitchy on it to say that, but uh, no, there, I, I, Facebook, I have friends who, and I, and I think it's a great that they that they do need Facebook as a certain kind of witness to their daily life, and they, mm-hmm. and I, and that's, and I think that's, I applaud them for it. So I'm really not being critical at all, right. Uh, I, I don't I don't need that, but I do love uh, sharing my uh, past and and these stories and shaping them. And and I had been working on this memoir for oh gosh, off and on about six years, and in some cases, you know, taking long, getting just easily discouraged and not working on it for quite long periods of time when I, and then getting distracted because I had, I had another job to do, you know, writing a play or sure. something, but yeah. or performing eight shows a week. But, uh, Facebook was very helpful to me with this memoir because sometimes, sometimes I would, I would take a chapter that I'd written and then edit it down a bit and then post it on Facebook and, and just get such immediate, uh, affection and feedback. Mm-hmm. That it was encouraging, and I and I needed needed that uh, that encouragement because I am not as com- not as confident in prose as I am in, in um, drama. So that encouragement was really good for me. And then the opposite, I would sometimes write write a story just directly for my Facebook page, and I, and I would get such encouragement that I think, oh, you know, I ought to put that in the book. That's that was mm-hmm. a good memory. That's that's important. So yeah. So what- yeah. Charles, what discourages you? And when you get discouraged, how do you how do you snap out of it? As, as they said in Cher said in uh in, in that movie. Go ahead. Well what discourages you? Well there's certain things I there's discouragement and there's discouragement. And I've yeah. gone yeah. I'm quite resilient. However, there have been periods rather long periods of my life. I had, I had a kind of um, late midlife crisis, I, I guess you'd call it, I don't know, at about 60, that uh, that there was about a, I don't know, a year or two of just, you know, I hesitate calling it depression because that tends to be like really loaded. But I was right. like, yeah, John, I was in a bad mood <laughs> for, for going on two years. Yes. And, and it was a time of... Um, 
And I don't know if I had to, I don't think, I don't literally, literally think it had to do with being, with turning 60. It was, I think I was in my late 50s. I, I don't think it was as facile as that. It just, but maybe just a certain time in a pers- person's life, the second, you know, if you divide life, maybe middle age starts at 40, I don't know, whatever, mm-hmm. but certainly pushing towards 60, I, uh, when there were realistic circumstances, you know, plays that failed, um, mm-hmm. uh, things that I had great hopes for just didn't work, didn't work out. And I, I went through the period of, um, Oh, just endless self-rumination. Uh, and I, and I, and I believe in calling in the Marines. You know, I went, I've been in therapy at different points in my life, went back into therapy because I'm a big proselytizer for therapy. Uh, and, um, I went back to see the, see the shrink for a short period of time. Just, you know, get myself out of this, uh, this just heaviness. And, um, I, uh, just, I went through such a brutal, um, self-criticism where, and, and it was funny or ironic that at this time, Lincoln center library of performing arts contacted me about wanting to, uh, purchase all of my papers and manuscripts and, you know, uh, and all that, and, and it was just you know, really a very, a great honor. I, it was sure wonderful and should have made me feel awfully good about myself, right? But I had to, in getting all of this stuff together, I basically had to reread everything I'd written since the age of 10. And I was in such a, in a just a dark state that I felt, felt, I felt false. So that's good. But I, 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 thought everything wasn't really very good and you know plays of mine that did were not successful i reread but yeah no wonder they flopped and things that that were successfully i would reread and think they like that really you know that's not that good i i really was pretty awful to myself and um and then there were you know just certain you know often when you're depressed i mean there are certain realities that are depressing Yes. You know, just, you know, opportunities lost or, you know, but then I would, oh, I was endlessly ruminating on choices that I'd made in, in my life. Should I have, should I have done that? I didn't want to do that. Should I have done that? What's the point of saying that when you didn't want to do it? And you, you, you know, just this endless going back and forth. And, and then I guess I, I think I wore myself out finally and just, yeah. Found, found some kind of, of happiness because I was just tired of being, being you know, grim. But maybe right. I worked out. I think I, I worked out a certain um, peace with what I had accomplished and, and found a certain pride in, in what I had done. And maybe I hadn't done this, but oh, yeah. I did do this. and. Yeah. That's something to, uh, to be proud of. Right. Well, Charles, uh, I, I, I have um, Eddie Cantor's saying that uh, might put a, a, a little optimistic view of what you're expressing. And he said, everybody's entitled to at least 10 bad years. <laughs> so you don't, at least, at least it didn't take 10 years for you to 
Oh no, it's about two. Snap out of it, this year. About two years. Yeah, but you, the thing, the funny thing was, is that I, uh, I'd always prided myself on my resilience. That when a, a, a play that I had great hopes for uh, got, you know, bad reviews, and uh, I would, you know, be angry, um, horribly disappointed. You know, it lasts about three weeks, and then I get back on the horse again. But so it was. It was disturbing to me that that I, this time around that was not ha- happening but I, I i i moved on i moved on and and you know accepted this, this, this the realities of my circumstances but then try to find just try to find something new to be excited about and and to work on one of the things that helped me was I began, I went kind of back to my, my roots in the East Village and started doing plays at Theater for the New City, which is a very raffish, marvelous, quintessentially downtown producing organization that's been, was founded by an extraordinary woman named Crystal Field, who still is still running this theater. She founded the theater in the late, in the late 60s, and she's still you know, running it with an iron fist uh, today. And, and nothing will defeat her, but and, and I guess in a way she's she's kind of my theatrical mother. I didn't re- somehow didn't realize it until until I went through that crisis, uh, and I because I'd been doing I'd had a professional relationship with her since 1982. She produced my very first play in New York uh, at Theater for New City. So this so over the last. Um, a decade, I've returned oh, almost every other year with a new play, and 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 I found this. I have this little core of people who love me and want to do these plays. Carl Andrus, who I've had long, he's really my. In some, he's much younger than I. So in some ways, I think of him as my my son as well as my dear friend and collaborator. Uh, so he direct and produce the plays, and and then there's a, a group of actors that I, I love, actors like Jennifer Van Dyke and and well, Julie did, and Julie Halston. She's done some with me there, um, and just a group of new people that I found that I just adore being with, and and I write these plays with them in mind. Often I I you know I come up with a fantasy of who I'd like to pl- what kind of old movie or theatrical genre I'd like to mm-hmm. embrace. And what kind of part would I like to play? And then I write a list of who I'd like to hang out with. Yeah. Really? Well, uh, and then I write parts that I figure out how to how to work a plot around those that group of actors that I just want to want to spend time with. And it's a wonderful thing. And and it, and it really did help me get out of the the kind of uh, artistic funk that I was in. And we didn't invite any critics to these plays either, so there wasn't that pressure of of oh you know we're, we're of doing anything for other than for the joy of performing and the joy of of giving this experience to to this audience, right? Was, because you can get distracted. I listen. I, I have been very fortunate with the New York critics. I mean, I I I cannot say that I've been treated unfairly. I mean, actually, you want a you know rave review every time, but even when I have it, most of the time when I calm down, I sort of thought. I'll sort of see the point, maybe. Uh, you know, and, and so I've been very fortunate. But there still is something about facing this battery of of New York journalists that can get you confused 
and you start thinking you're doing it just for them and not for the audience or for or for your own right. creativity. You know, and, and I've been I've been in situations with reviews where I thought when we got when we got the bad, bad reviews, I thought, oh, why do we have to keep doing the play? We we fail. Why do we have to keep doing it? And then when I've gotten rave reviews, I thought, why do we we succeeded in what we set out to do? Why do we have to keep doing it? Yeah, yeah, that's not the right right attitude. Right, right, right. Let me ask you, was it who was the person that you most admired, the personality or the actor or the writer that you admired the most and you met? Um, and you had, and, and who dis who didn't disappoint you. I'm not going to, uh, uh, ask who did disappoint you, but who was the person that you really most admired that you, you admired. And then when you met the person, cause generally there's a disconnect, they say you should never hate the people that you, that you admire. So I'll, I'll throw that at you. Well, uh, I've met a lot of people over the past uh, 45 years since I've been really in showbiz. Uh, well, well, I'll ask you two. two. We froze up. Charles froze up. Well, Charles, uh, while we get Charles back, okay, ahead. okay, we're back. Okay, uh, anyway, uh, Charles Ludlam certainly, um, who was yeah. my my idol, you know, really meant a lot to me. You know, seeing him and and that the fact that that within his own history and his work that I saw as a very young person the possibility for a career. So, so, and yes, yeah, so, so that was very important that I got to know, to meet him and he was, you know, a tricky personality. So I can't say we sure. friends, but, but, you know, that was very meaningful to me. However, however, I think you're, I think you, you're going a little more on the celebrity uh, quotient. Uh, sure. I, the ones that, it's funny. I, I, I don't usually get, um, uh, I don't get n- nervous generally when, when celebrities come to see plays of mine, I, I'm, I'm pretty cool about that. But the two ladies who really, I got very self-conscious were uh, Barbara Cook and Angela Lansbury. Oh, and, yeah. And it was because uh, they, I'd, I'd gotten to know them both socially. Yes. And, and I knew that they liked me, but they'd never actually seen me perform. And so then when they finally came, each of them separately came to see me in a play, I was very nervous and so self-conscious. I don't think I was particularly very good those nights because the whole time I was thinking, I was right. like, is she, is, is, is Angie, is she laughing at this? Does she think she like that? Maybe that's too dirty. She like I mean, it's just very self-conscious. Right. She, right. He got it and same with Barbara Cook. And I think it was because I what made me more nervous was the fact that I knew that they liked me as that that nice boy. And but I wanted them to respect me and think I was talented. So right. it, it worked out. Worked yeah. out. And I guess uh well big thrill was um oh I don't know how many years, ten years ago maybe. Um 
Julie Halston and I were doing a, a play, a revival of a play of mine called The Lady in Question out at the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor. And Paul McCartney came to the show. Oh my God. And, that would have been and of course, Julie was, I think, president of the John Lennon fan club at Comac at the age of 16. Oh, great. And Paul McCartney certainly was my first crush as a, you know, sure. you know, and he's, I mean, you don't get much more famous than Paul McCartney. No, no, so, no, no. Absolutely. Came, and he came to the show and, uh, and came backstage afterwards and it was so nice and oh stayed about a half hour with us and just wow couldn't have been nice for every single person in the crew and taking pictures and everything and and uh oh it just was heaven heaven oh well let let me tell you something you bring out the best in people okay so i i just want you to know you about that <laughs> uh, no not well maybe it's a good maybe it's a good disguise but i mean you know you when you're on okay there's nobody better let me tell you you're you're you just you just make people you're so warm and you just make uh people want to have a conversation with you so i can understand paul mccartney not wanting to leave okay mm-hmm. or engaging uh you're you're an engaging personality let me let, let's I try, let's try, try. I try i try to be engaging I yeah, well some, some people have been very nasty to me i i don't I don't know. I, I, you know, it's funny is when I first kind of uh, made my first splash with vampire lesbians of Sodom, I think uh, people f- assumed that when they met me, that I was going to be this really outrageous, bitchy uh, drag queen who uh, loves spraying you know, insult humor and all that kind of thing. And I, and when they would come backstage, particularly sort of fashion people. Mm hmm. And I could sense that they were disappointed that I was not that kind of, you know, uh, right. funny, you know, right. you know, you're, you're, you know, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. yeah. So I, and I had to kind of accept that the, 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 I disappointed them, but that's not who, mm-hmm. what I, what I traffic in. Yeah. 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 In, in the, I, I, in the few minutes that we, can you believe we only got another two minutes? I can go over another three hours with you. I'm having oh, a I, uh, Well, the feeling is mutual, uh, but I have to because, uh, you know, the reason that I initially reached out to you before Scott and I loved Psycho Beach Party. It was my first Charles Bush movie. And I mean, you were so very funny in it. I mean, and I, and I saw it on, um, I it was HBO. It was one of those cable channels, you know, and, uh, I, I just loved it. I said, who is this guy? And I Googled you and I said, I got to meet this guy. I got like a bucket list of people that I wanted to meet. And this had to be about 10 years ago. Well, it was longer than that. It was probably about uh, 12, 13 years ago. And, uh, you know, when Scott mentioned that he knew you, I said, well, we, I, I, I want to meet this guy. I, I want to take him to dinner. And we go to the same restaurants. There's some, we, we like to go to vice versa. We know we know a lot of similar people. Okay. So uh, anyway, when this is when this is all over, this craziness is all over. 
you're going to be my guest. I got I got a great well, Italian restaurant. We'll go to and we'll we'll uh, we'll invite Scott, whether or not he can come along. Yeah. Uh, that's another story, yeah. but we'll do we'll do that. But uh, talk a little bit about Psycho Beach Party and uh, how that all started. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, well, the play was um, the second play that we, I did the next play after Vampire Lesbians of Sodom and it was with my company Theater in Limbo uh, so we, we did that and that ran about a year nearly a year and I never thought it would I thought of it as a, a movie particularly it seemed like a very stage bound theater piece <laughs> but I, I had the most extraordinary manager agent manager Jeffrey Melnick who just passed away last November and I, I'm only now somehow really I guess I was so busy that I, I tabled my missing him. And, and now I'm now suddenly, because I've got a lot of time on my hands, I'm, I'm just missing him dreadfully. And, you know, for 30 years, this is a person who had such enthusiasm for me and, and loved, just loved me, just loved me. And it could be just impossible. And, uh, you know, in the last year of his life, you know, he was ill and lonely and out in Palm Springs and was rather difficult person. And we had our kind of our first sort of falling out even that we quickly resolved. But uh, but now uh, the, the months have gone by. I, I just miss him so much. Uh, anyway, he thought that this could be a movie and I I, I didn't really b- believe it. But he kept pursuing it for years, for years. And uh, finally, uh, I mean, it took him about 12 years or something until it all worked out that that he took on a new client, uh, a young film director, um, uh, Robert King, who who had a a deal with Strand releasing to do a feature film. And so Jeff said, well, then you should do a make your film do Psycho Beach Party and, and team me with Bob King and uh, who taught me a, a lot about screenwriting because I hadn't done that screenplay before. So, so, so that it all came So Jeffrey really put it together and, wow. um, and then Bob King, you know, who's, uh, was very, is a very astute fellow, really new movies, even though he had never directed a feature, but he shepherded me through that screenplay and and had and had many many ideas about how to open it up and turn it more into kind of a spoof of, of a slasher film because there was there was very little narrative in the certain right. in the in the play there was no no murders that took place right. it was a much kind of lighter yeah little bubble of a, of a play and then uh, I had originally a part of it, it, the basic premise is a, a uh, spoof uh, or spoof uh, evokes uh, Gidget, you know the original Sandra. Right, Dean. right. That's why I loved it. And I, and I, in the theater, I played, I played the teenage girl. I played Gidget, <laughs> in the play. I played the part. And then yeah. when we made the movie, it was many years later. You know, so I was. Oh, at this point, I was in my way in my forties, and and and. And, it, and the idea was that it was not going to be that stylized a movie that right. uh, have right. somebody drag playing this a middle-aged yeah. man drag playing this teenage girl. Mm-hmm. That we it was always the idea that we would that a movie would look so realistic 
and it was indeed shot in the exact same locations in Malibu and Zuma Beach as all those beach party movies, exact yes. locations. So it yeah. looked like those movies, and we were lucky to have found this very talented young young girl, Lauren Ambrose, to, to oh, take. Oh, Lauren Ambrose. I forgot that she yeah, was in there. She wow. Had, she had now she had already done had some nice parts in in, in big studio movies, but supporting wow. I think I do believe this was the first movie that she, you know, yes. was yeah. a star star of. And then a number of years after that she yeah. she did um Six Feet Under and yeah. so Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. But, but Bob, they really, Bob really wanted me in the movie, right? Not, not as Chicklet. So, well, so we were thinking about it. Well, you know, there's the kind of Joan Crawford type, you know, severe mother. Sure. But I, I always liked having a, a, a biological actress playing that part. I, right. I you know, with with drag in my plays, I, I've always been. You know, I'm very selective on which which roles are are cross-gender casting and i like doing it the, the not the obvious you know yes. the, the kind of dragon you know mother would seem to be like the the drag queen role but yes. i wrote for my friend a wonderful actress who died very young mcgann robinson who was bigger than life and had this marvelous contralto voice and a lot of people thought she was a guy in drag when they saw her in the play because she was so you know yeah. wigged and all this and yeah. but i thought it was interesting that she was a real but you're the biological woman. Yeah. Well, I want to. I want to talk more about this, but for today, right. our time is up. All but right. when you when we come back, where you're going to promote your the uh, the movie that you're doing, we're gonna we're gonna really elaborate. I want to thank you so much uh, for being on Brand Talk, and I hope you had as much fun as I did. Uh, listening to you you were just marvelous thank you so much thank you john okay so uh that's a uh another show brand talk another way to talk with the fabulous charles bush and we'll see you next week here on brand talk bye-bye thanks charles